Thank you, Steve, Charlotte, Mark, and the team upstairs, and uh, everyone for sharing in worship this morning as we come together. It's great to be in the presence of God and the presence of uh, one another as we worship together. It doesn't seem that long ago that uh, I started this series off uh, in Psalms, and uh, now this is the penultimate one. Uh, Martin will finish it off next week, and then after that, a new series. Um, so I won't um, uh, give that away, because I'm sure Martin will, will add that to his sermon next week. Um, now, when I came to look at this, and um, Psalm 51, I thought, oh, <laughs> it's one of those Psalms that, um, where do I go with this? And uh, I was upstairs on, on PA a few Sundays back, and um, I was just thinking, I, I should have been listening to Martin, I know, um, but I was just thinking about how am I going to do Psalm 51? And God then suddenly, vroom, and I picked up the notebook that was up there and just scribbled a whole load of stuff. Um, so this is what you're going to get. So um, I'm trusting this is of God for Psalm 51. So it's worshipping God in failure. And uh, I'm sure none of us are failures, are we? No, no, we're, we're, we're so perfect. Uh, but we need to worship God, even if we're not, and uh, we're, we're failures, then we need to worship him in that way. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced times when things are going great, where there's no problem, no hassle. Our relationship with God is, is on the right plane. Our relationship with our families is good. Our relationship with our friends is good. The relationship with all those in church is good. And things are just going great. And then Satan comes along with his big paddle and stirs the pot. And uh, he stirs it by bringing sickness. He stirs it by bringing temptation. He stirs it by all sorts of ways to try and try and break up these good feelings that we've got about our life. And as we look at this Psalm of David, David was in that same boat. Things were going great with David. There were real good times for him. And in 2 Samuel, we read this. Uh, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. David fought battle after battle after battle, but there were times when he was able to rest, times when he was able to just, in a way, just sit in the presence of God and uh, do nothing. What a great place to be. I hope you've all got your places where you go to and do nothing, because it's great. But David was in a, a very good position because he had a really good relationship with God. And he promised, God promised David that his kingdom would last and endure forever and ever. So he's starting from a good place. Then something happened. Satan stirred the pot and uh, temptation was put in front of David. Now, for those that don't know this story uh, uh, of David, this part of David's life, I'm going to share it with you. Um, so it's good that we're all on then on the same page. So what caused David to write Psalm 21? Well, he was king over Israel, and it was a unified Israel at that time. And all the things that he was doing was seen as just and right in God's sight and in the people's sight. So things were going well, then things changed dramatically for him. 
he sins big time. You see, David was supposed to be the leader of the army, and he should have been going out with the army to face the Ammonites. But instead of going, he stays in his palace and uh, sends one of his leaders, Joab, to do the work for him, to lead the army. So that's what he should have been doing. He was probably in his palace, in that place of doing nothing. You know, just a place of rest. This is, this is wonderful. But unfortunately, where his palace was overlooked lots of places. And as he gazed over uh, what all, all his uh, people, he happened to see a lady. And he was supposed to be not there, but he saw this lady. And he was supposed to be setting the standard for his people. He was supposed to be setting the moral standard for all his people. And yet he sees this lady, Bathsheba, and he sees her while she's bathing. Now, I don't know, I didn't live in those times, but I guess um, where they were bathing was uh, um, not very private and uh, probably with no clothes on either. And David is looking down from his palace and looking at her. If that had stopped, if he had stopped at that point, the rest of the story wouldn't have happened. But he doesn't. He likes what he sees, and therefore he takes further action. He first sends someone to find out about her. Who is this lady I have seen? And they come back and say she's the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. And again, if he'd have stopped there, now I know he's, she's married, therefore that's it. But no, he doesn't. He then orders someone to go and get her and bring her to him. And when she comes to him as the king and as the subjects do what the king tells you to do, he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Again, if that was the end of it, that would have been all right, but no, David then tries to cover it up and he covers it up in a very devious way because he calls Uriah to him when he comes back uh, from the battles and he says, you know, you've worked really hard in the battle. Take some time, have a rest, go and be with your wife. Now, Uriah is a good army man. <clears throat> and if the rest of the army is sleeping in tents outside the city wall or inside the city wall, then I'm going to do the same. So Uriah doesn't do what the king has told him to do. And David finds out. So he calls him again and says, look, you know, you need to go home to be with your wife. And again, he disobeys and encamps with the rest of the army. So David now has a problem. Because Uriah is going to find out that his wife is pregnant and he hasn't been with her. David then plots to kill him. And the way he does it, he calls the leaders of the army in and says, when, when you go out to battle next time, put Uriah right at the front of the battle. And in the heat of the battle, withdraw, leaving him exposed to the enemy. Which is exactly what happens. And of course, Uriah is killed. It was a sequence of events that could have been stopped 
at any time. And just to put it into summary, a gaze became an inquiry, an inquiry became an order, an order became a rendezvous, a rendezvous became adultery, adultery became a pregnancy, a pregnancy became a cover-up, and a cover-up became murder. A sequence of events that could have been stopped, the chain could have been broken at any time. But David doesn't break it. He gives in to the temptation that's been put there before him. And the whole of the event is an abuse of David's power as king. He stepped over the line. The moral standard has been broken. This is the king. And he's done all this. But he's not the only one that is complicit in this because there is the army commanders, those that are closest to David who went and got the information, who went and got her and bought her. There was a, a, a little community of people who were in on all that had happened. And after uh, Uriah is killed, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And so he thought, well, that's it. I got away with it because now I've got Bathsheba as my wife. She's pregnant. No problem. You see, the problem for David is that God is all-seeing and all-knowing. And he knows to the minutest detail what David has done. And God is not pleased with what David has done. And so he sends Nathan to him to bring him face to face with the truth. But to get his attention and to put it into context, Nathan tells him a story. And he tells him a story about two people, a rich man who had a great big, is it a herd of sheep? I don't know, is it? Flock, flock of sheep. And there's a poor man that just has one lamb. And Nathan explains the rich man had a visitor come to him and he wanted to feed him roast lamb. And instead of taking one of his own flock, he takes the poor man's lamb and kills it and serves it to his visitor. David is enraged. He is so angry that he declares to Nathan, whoever this man is should be killed. He's done such wrong. And Nathan says, that man is you. In a way, David has signed his own death warrant because he said that man should be killed. But God is faithful to forgive. David had been found out. And in a way, you see, he, he deserves to die. And he's, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, he says this, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. What an amazing God we have, that in the light of that, God is faithful to forgive. So once David is aware that God is aware of all that he's done, he takes himself away and he writes Psalm 51. So that's the background. That's the history behind it all. That's the introduction on worshipping in failure.
But you see the good news for David and the good news for us that God is faithful when we confess our sins to forgive us. And although God would bring death and calamity on David's house as a result of his sin, David was still forgiven and he would not die. You see, David isn't the only one that has sinned. We have all sinned and we're all subject to God's wrath and judgment. Romans 1 verse 23 and 6 verse 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's good news, and the good news is that we are saints who sometimes sin. We are not sinners, those that have been saved by Christ through the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. That we are now saints who sometimes sin. We're in a different position. We are no longer sinners because we're forgiven by Almighty God. So how can we worship then in failure? And uh, three ways. Worshipping God in repentance. Worshipping God in forgiveness and worshipping God in freedom. So first, worshipping God in repentance. Psalm 51 verse 1 says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Calling on God's compassion, God's mercy to forgive him. David is full of remorse for what he's done. But he knows there is a way to put himself right with God. And by putting himself right with God, he puts himself into a better relationship with God. That the relationship that he had when, De when God gave him rest from his enemies is restored to David as he repents of his sin and God faithfully forgives him. Now, this model of confession and forgiveness is a theme right the way through the Bible. We can read it all the time. And it's important for Christians to know and experience this deeply, that we need to repent of our sins. And if we do, God is faithful to forgive. See, our struggle with sin requires us to seek forgiveness from not only from God, but from one another. It starts with asking God to forgive. But maybe we need to ask one another for forgiveness if we've done something uh, against each other. So we need to confess our sin. We need to confess our faults, our wrongdoings, not only to God, but to one another. And once we confess, God is faithful to forgive. We also need to confess to one another where we've sinned against one another, where we've caused hurt or wrongdoing to one another. We need to ask for forgiveness. Whether they choose to forgive or not is up to them. But we need to ask for that forgiveness. As much as it is up to you, 
that's where the line is drawn. If they don't forgive, then that's between them and God, not between me and that person. I've asked for forgiveness. If they choose to forgive, that's great. The relationship is restored. But if they don't, you can do no more. And by confessing our sins, it's acknowledging that we have done something wrong. And it's deserving of rebuke. It's deserving of some form of punishment. But God is faithful and he will forgive our sins. And we need to be a people that do exactly the same. Confession sometimes doesn't mean just admitting fault, but means we're willing to change in whatever way is necessary. And sometimes that's hard, because if we sin in the same way, we've got to somehow break the chain. As David needed to break the chain of all from the glance to the murder, he needed to break the chain. We need to break the chain of persistent sin. And we may need to ask one another to help us. We may need to ask God to help us. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify us from all unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is faithful to forgive and he will continue to forgive. The slate is wiped clean and we are given a fresh start by God to worship him in repentance. The problem is sometimes is that we don't always think God has forgiven us. And uh, we ask God time and time and time again to forgive us. And so when the first time when we've confessed our sin, God is faithful to forgive. If we come again, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. Because once I've forgiven, it's gone and it's gone for good. The slate is wiped clean. So we need to worship God in repentance. So secondly, worshiping God in forgiveness. And uh, in verse 10, David writes, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So it's good to know that if we are forgiven and renewed in the joy of our salvation because our sins have been forgiven, then we're assured of the cleansing that is ours in Christ from his blood shed on the cross. And through his grace, he renews us in his promises as we receive from him the washing and the burying of our sins. And I like a really old hymn. You may not know it, but you might. And it says, buried in the deepest sea, yes, that's good enough for me. My sin is forgiven and buried in the deepest sea. And that song was taken from Micah chapter 7 and verse 19. It says, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. 
And to quote another psalm of David about how far God takes our sin away, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You can't get any further. But I guess if you go east and someone goes west, you'll join together again at some point. That's not what God means. It's the furthest points away. Hmm? Flat earth. <laughs> yeah. God forgives all of our sin, not in part, but the whole. It's not, this is too much. You've gone too far this time, so I can only forgive so much. That's not what God is like. God forgives in the whole and not just in part. And this forgiveness is available to us now and for the future and it's full and absolute forgiveness so there's no sin that falls outside of god's forgiveness and forgiveness is our present possession here and now the relationship is restored but we need to accept that our sins are dealt with by Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Because if we don't accept that, we can't accept any of the other benefits that we have from God's hand. Forgiveness is the greatest benefit we can receive. This doesn't mean that we don't need to confess our sins and receive God's forgiveness, because we do. We need to accept that God will forgive if we are willing to repent of them. See, there's another side to forgiveness that is equally important, and that's forgiving yourself. Because if you're very sensitive, and I can be, that if I caused hurt from someone or to someone, and I ask for forgiveness, and they do forgive, I struggle to forgive myself because I've caused hurt to someone. Whether I meant it, whether I didn't mean it, I've caused hurt and that affects me emotionally. But I have to get to the point where if they've forgiven and God has forgiven, I am forgiven. Otherwise, it festers in us. We need to accept the forgiveness because accepting it is releasing. Uh, the offence and the offender to God. We need to hold on to that. Mark 11, 25 says this, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sin. Jesus reminds us that even our own grievances must be dealt with, and they must be dealt with first. Or there's a knock-on effect in our relationship with one another. And if our relationship with one another isn't right, our relationship with God isn't right either. We need to learn to forgive. Let me give you an example. When I was a teenager, a long time ago, <clears throat> I was at um, Woking Baptist Church, known as Percy Street then. And uh, we went on a, a church weekend and like all church weekends, including the ones that I've been on here, it ends with communion. 
uh, the end of the weekend. So we have a communion service. And uh, the pastor, Harold Owen, um, was um, speaking and leading the communion, and he suddenly stopped. I thought, oh. And he said, God has put something in my mind that I need to share. And that is, there are people here holding a grudge or a problem and not forgiving one another. And we will not continue until it's put right. So I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait on God until it's put right. My heart suddenly went 12 to the dozen, uh, 20 to the dozen. I was hot, I was flushed, and I just knew the Holy Spirit was prompting me to go and ask forgiveness from a girl in the youth group. Now I had a problem with her because she was one of these people that wants to be the center of attention. You know, always in the thick of things. Uh, look at me, look how good I am. And uh, she really wound me up. And uh, j just for the record, it wasn't Val. Okay. <laughs> So it wasn't her, she wasn't at the weekend because she was here and I was at Woking Baptist. Uh, and I really had a problem with her. But because I felt hot, because my heart was thumping, I knew I had to restore that relationship. I was the first person to stand up. And I went to her and I explained my attitude towards her, you know, how arrogant she was and all this, you know, it's hard, it's hard, because who's the arrogant one, me, <laughs> to go to her and do it, she was absolutely shocked, she said, I don't believe this, I thought we had a good relationship, but she forgave me, once I'd sat down, lots of other people got up, now, at this point, I guarantee you're all glad communion was last week. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> well, it isn't communion today, but I would encourage you to put right anything that hinders us from worshipping God because it has an effect on other people. Put it right. And if you need to put it right today, then put it right today. I have to say that was the longest communion service I have ever been to. It took, it took about half an hour for everybody to move around and then for it all to go quiet again, to continue. But in a way, it was one of the best communion services I've ever been to. Because there was restored relationships. And in restoring the relationships with one another, it restores the relationship with God. So we need to forgive as we have been forgiven. So we worship God in forgiveness. Lastly, worshiping God in freedom. And uh, Psalm 51 verses 12 and 15 says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And verse 15, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. When we worship, 
the last thing we want is to be held back by our past or present sins. We need to be released from those to repent, to receive that forgiveness and to worship in freedom. We are then free to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. We've been liberated by Jesus Christ, by what he did on Calvary. We've been liberated to worship in spirit and in truth. You see, it's not the enemy on our shoulders saying, did God really forgive you? That was too big a sin. We need to listen to God and not to Satan standing on our shoulders, whispering lies into our hearts. The truth is we have been set free and we need to worship in freedom. We've been liberated. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's amazing news. And it's the Holy Spirit within us that awakens us in an understanding of God's splendor and power. He stirs us to celebrate and to rejoice and to give thanks. Wasn't it amazing in that, in that worship time, singing time that we had with what Steve had put together and then what the Spirit laid on other people's hearts to share? What a great time of worship, sung worship that was this morning. Leads us to the very throne room where we can worship and adore the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And worshipping in spirit and truth means we worship in truth, not in lies. The truth is we are forgiven and we need to stand in that forgiveness. And includes the truth about who God is and what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. I started off by saying about when circumstances are really good. And sometimes it's easy to worship God when things are going well but we need to worship God when things aren't going so well. When we're experiencing difficult circumstances, we need to worship. And often I find hymns come into my mind or songs come into my mind and I just sing them out, whether that's in my heart or whether that's out loud, I sing them out because I'm singing truth that I am forgiven. And yes, I'm going through these difficult circumstances, but God is standing with me. And not only is he standing with me, sometimes he's carrying me. So why shouldn't I worship and adore him? We worship God because he's worthy of our worship. And we need to worship him in the freedom he has given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die for each one of us to take the burden of sin on himself, on his body, on the cross. And by doing that, sin and death were defeated. And because of the outshed blood, that we are washed whiter than the snow, that our sins are buried in the deepest sea, they're, they're as far as the east is from the west. And we thank you that we are your people. But Lord, we recognise that we are human, and people hurt us, people upset us. And Lord, I pray this morning for all those that have heard the word, including me, that if I'm holding anything against anyone in this fellowship, 
Holy Spirit, will you stir me? Will you stir us to go and do something about it? We need to restore our relationship with one another. And in doing that, we restore our relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, continue to move upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.